0: This is Recognize, a podcast about the NHL's black and biracial hockey heroes, proudly supported by eBay Canada. Ever since I was a kid, I collected hockey cards with spare change my dad gave me. As a black person, to see others like me on the ice inspired me. They were my role models and showed me hockey is a game for everyone. I've collected one hundred rookie cards for NHL's black and biracial players, and I'm going to talk to all of them so you can learn their
1: stories. So I'm staring down at my state laces because the whole rank, the whole focus of the whole rank is on me. I, I just want to be a part of the team and play the game that I love, but because I show up in this black skin, the whole you know effort is is is, is drawn my way.
0: Bernie Saunders was born in Montreal, Quebec, and moved between Toronto and Quebec throughout his childhood. Bernie graduated from Ajax High School in Ajax, Ontario, and played with the Quebec Nordiques during the 1979-80 and 80-81 seasons. His rookie card is from 1979. It shows a young Bernie in the blue and white of the Nordiques. As he's leaning forward holding his stick, he looks calm, happy, and in the moment. Let's meet the man from the card. What comes to mind when you look at the card?
1: I, I felt at the time I was exactly where I was supposed to be. Uh, I, I had done all the work um, in preparation for making it to the NHL when I took the college hockey route, but I played four years there in college. I went to the, to the Central League and the American Hockey League and did really well there. And so when I was called up to the NHL, I just felt like I was on schedule and in, in the exact place where I was supposed to be at that point in my life.
0: Could I ask you this particular photo? Do you remember back then, like where it was taken and when it was taken? Um, Yeah, absolutely. It's
1: it's funny. I I don't have a a great memory, but for things like that, I do. And it it was um, during training camp, um, my first year with, with the Nordiques and they just had a camera set up on the ice before practice. And the guy came out on this red carpet and, um, when it was your turn, they just called you over and they, they took an action shot and then and a, and a, and a standstill shot. Like I said, it's funny. I don't remember a lot of things, but I remember that like it was yesterday.
0: Did you ever collect cards as a young person um, or when you were a professional? And uh, have you kept any of your cards?
1: Yeah, I, I was a card collector. As a matter of fact, uh, I'm not sure if you recall, but back in the day, uh, we used to play card games. You would lean a card against the wall. You flick cards and try to knock them down, and you would, you would earn cards or win cards based off playing that game. And so I was pretty good at that. We played that in school and, and home and whatnot. But I collected all the cards, and uh, you know, I was a typical Canadian where I just fantasized about being a NHL hockey player, and collecting cards was a big part of that.
0: Now, we're going to come back to this later, but uh, I know I've read in your book, uh, Autobiography, 2021 shut out the game that did not love me black. Um, Could you take a moment to share with us
1: why you wrote this book? Yeah, the reason why I wrote the book, Dean, is really multifactorial. I listed a few of them in the book, but the main reason is that I'm a black man and I've dealt with a lot of injustice uh, during my 66 years on this planet. And um, initially I felt the trajectory of racism was on a good Path it was kind of leaning towards, you know, abolition in, in the future, so I was happy with that. But the, the last six so years, I think we've gone in the wrong direction. That coupled with the fact that um, the George, George Floyd incident, um, with a man, black man just laying in the street with with a police officer's um, knee on his shoulder, um, just left a bitter taste in my mouth. And of course, now we have the Tyree Nichols incident. So. I feel as a 66-year-old man, a black man, I I felt it was um, time to speak out. I I wanted to uh, add my voice to kind of the social justice conversation and, you know, telling my hockey story was my way of doing it.
0: Yeah, I think that was a common moment for uh, many people of color, uh, the George Floyd incident, and many people um, reacted um, constructively in that way, as you have done. I I want to step back a bit more now, and um, if you could share with us um, where you grew up? Uh, when did you first start skating?
1: Yeah, I was born in Montreal. But, um, you know, age three or so, we moved to Toronto. My brother is John Saunders. He's famous for um, being one of the um, first broadcasters on ESPN. And uh, he had joined the hockey team. And so, of course, being a Canadian, uh, we skated on the on the pond rinks uh, with our with double barrel um, blades and whatnot. And uh, John uh, joined a team called State Farm Insurance. And back in that time, I'm not sure what the rules are now, but back in that time, you started playing hockey at six. And so John started at six and started off as, as a goalie. And as the story goes, it's kind of family folklore, uh, my mother would bring me to his practices, and I would cry from beginning to end. And so finally, after one practice, uh, the coach was leaving the, the arena, and he stopped and sees me creating all the spots. And he says my mother, what's, what's wrong with him? My mother just says, you know, sheepishly, he wants to play hockey. And so the, the, the coach just says, okay, well, next practice, bring him out and, and, and uh, have him skate. And so that's exactly what happened. And because of my tears, I started a, a year uh, a, ahead of my time, and the rest is history, as they say.
0: So uh, just elaborating on that, are so, there some early memories that stand out with you? And um, did you feel you were good at this game from day one?
1: I uh, really did. i I, I feel like um, um I was pretty much put on the planet to to use my body, and, and of course, you do that through athletics. and so I was good at all the sports. Um, I played too many sports and, and I, I, I can list twenty of them. I played everything. If it, if it was a sport, I was playing it in school, I was on the track team. I was on the basketball team. I was on the volleyball team. I was on the on the soccer team. So I played every sport but because of the dominance of hockey in Canada of course hockey became my favorite sport and so that's kind of the way I answer your question because i believe if i had been in america i probably would have played, played baseball or football or potentially basketball as a point guard uh, but because of the dominance and 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 uh, the exposure of hockey um, in canada we'd watch saturday you know saturday and hockey on 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 tv every every saturday type of thing and so it was clear that hockey would be my favorite. What
0: what position did you play, and could you elaborate on what type of a player you were at a young age?
1: I was always um, a forward. Um, in the beginning, I was a center, but eventually migrated to to the wing. Uh, I always called myself a skill player. You know, back back in the day when you played pond hockey or when you played on the outdoor rinks, um, there's sometimes ten players aside, and so it was it was kind of like the the law of the jungle where only the strongest or in this case the more most skills survived and so we, we learned playing hockey out there with with you know 20 people on the ice type of type of a thing and uh, that's where i learned my skills it wasn't through you know coaches or teaching whatnot it was just out there being on the ice almost every day practicing my my skills what were your favorite hockey stars when you were younger a very easily um I talk about this in my book, um, Guy Lafleur. Fleur. Again, I was born in Montreal, um, so I was a Montreal Canadiens um, fan. My brother was born in Toronto, so he became a, a Maple Leaf fan. And um, I just loved the Flying Frenchman, you know, those teams with, with um, the high level of skills, uh, the, the way that they would uh, orchestrate their game around, around that rink was, was poetic. Now, Guy Gila Fleur was my favorite, and so I, I patterned my game around him. And, and um, by that, I, I mean, for example... One of his, um, what they call his patent play was he, he would come racing down through the neutral zone on the right side of the ice. You'd he, either have the puck or he would receive, receive a pass. he would take three steps inside the offensive blue line and fire a slap shot to the far corner. And the shot not only was a far corner, but it was high enough to be over the goalie's um, skate and low enough to be lo- below the blocker. And so for years, off ice, on ice, in between, I practiced that 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 move and that shot. And then when I, you know, played, for example, in, in college, I'd say twenty three percent of my, my goals came off that play. And then when I turned pro, you know, about twenty percent of my goals came off that play, where I can just do it without even thinking. Can you talk about some of the people who influenced your early development as a hockey player? Well, probably my biggest influence was my brother, to tell the truth, because you know, I we're family three. We we had John was the oldest. I was the middle. We we had a younger, a sister, Gail. And John, of course, was older, bigger, stronger. And so for me, that was my goal um, was to beat my brother in, in everything. But 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 hockey was was, was most, port, most important, most important, prominent. And the thing about me, Dean, was I, I was a nerd. But a sports nerd, meaning um, I was out on dates and doing all the stuff that, that, that others were doing. When I was home, I was at the rink or even in the basement shooting pucks type of thing. And so um, it took a while, but eventually I caught and eventually surpassed my brother. Um, but, but having him there as, as a goal was, was something that really drove me as, as a kid.
0: Yeah, I can relate with that. Um my brother's four years older and his friends, we'd always play road hockey. And I think some of the younger siblings kind of benefit from the experience of playing alone in, in the card collection. Um, I was checking today, there's at least four or five brother combinations that play at least one NHL game. I know your, your brother didn't play in NHL, but still, I think that's a common commonality,
1: right? Um, so when did you realize your future in the sport? You no, know, it's an interesting question for me because, um, almost at birth. That was one of the things that was, was, was so puzzling to me when I made it to the NHL and, and people couldn't, you know, back in the, in the mid, mid to late 70s, they, they couldn't grasp the idea of a black hockey player. And of course, I didn't see myself as a black hockey player, uh, Dean. I saw myself as a hockey player. And so I did all the training and so on and so forth that, you know, you would expect of somebody that's going to be playing in, in, the, in, the, in the national hockey league and so when i made it there again i just thought that was where it's supposed to be it, it wasn't it wasn't even um that intimidating when, when i made it there because i i, I planned my, my whole life the disappointing thing of course with my story was that um outwardly pe- people just just couldn't fathom the concept of, of a black hockey player and so that caused a lot of problems um, when when I finally made, finally made it there, but even on my my first game, I, I I just felt like this was my path and this was where I was supposed to be.
0: So in some of my research, I know um, you did um, part of your development was playing for uh, Quebec, the Shadow Gay Wings. Do you have any um, memorable moments to share as as part of your
1: development? Well, probably the the best thing to tell you about my my time in Shadow Gay is that my coach. Jacques Demers, uh, so Jacques Demers was a Coca-Cola truck driver at the time. He lived around the corner from us, and he just became famous within the town for um, coaching the the Chattagy Wings at, at, at the time. And so, the year before, John and I played midget, and we John was a star defenseman, I was a star winger. And Jacques kind of recruited us and watched us, watched us th- throughout the, the entire year. And then the next year, unfortunately, John suffered some injuries, and that's where our, our, his career kind of started going south um, at that point because of injuries. But I joined the team, and, and um, I did did really well. I, I don't have my stats, unfortunately, from the time, but I had a couple hat tricks and so on and so forth. Um, another another player on that team um, was Bobby Simpson, who, who I – Ended up playing for the, for the Atlanta Flames I think he was a top top draft choice and and so as as a developing kid again I was hardworking I did, did a lot of stuff on my own but a big influence for me was having good coaching and Jacques Demers of course you know was was the best as a matter of fact when when Jacques got his first job professional is when the WHA um, came in and um, Interesting enough, the Chicago Cougars hired Pat Whitey Stapleton as, as their player coach. And so um, they needed in hockey, you got to have somebody behind the bench to change lines if, if you have a player coach. And so through, through Jacques' reputation, they offered him the job in, in, in Chicago. And because we lived in this um, French community, um, Jacques knew that my father worked in the States. And so he came to us, he came to my father and basically said, you know, what's it like in the States? And do you recommend that I go down there? Because I, I have this this uh, coaching opportunity in Chicago. And of course, the rest is history. But uh, that was kind of when when um, things really came in for, for, for me and my brother.
0: Yeah, it's always so important to have um, hockey mentors and contacts in the world. So I'm sure he played quite an influential role in your development. And also then you move on to Pickering. I think there's, there might be a, a well-known hockey coach that connects with you there too. So you want to talk about Pickering?
1: Yeah. Pickering was really important to me too. So, so what happened was we, I played my, my first year junior B for Jacques in, in game And at the time there was, it was the height of the separatism movement and it looked like French was going to be mandatory Um, in high school. And unfortunately, uh, we can come back to this, but at the time, I didn't have great grades. And so the idea was that John and I, through influence of, of our father, wanted to go the U.S. university route as opposed to junior. And if French was mandatory, the fear was that we wouldn't pass high school. And so we moved to Toronto at that time. And interesting enough, when I first arrived, although I had played the year before in junior B, I had started the year before in junior B, I kind of parachuted to these camps in, in Toronto all of a sudden. And again, nobody could perceive of a black hockey player. And so it was kind of after one or two practices. Um, and I was really distraught. Um, eventually, after I think it was after three camps um, I basically gave up and stopped stopped playing hockey and, and it was a really difficult time in my life but then of course um, after a while I took a breath and eventually played played juvenile and uh, as luck would have it, the Pickering Panthers as a team they had um, four players that violated curfew and their coach who was a strict disciplinarian I'm sure Basson um, of course um, left them out for the game. And so they needed emergency, emergency replacements. I came in, scored a couple goals. I think I had a goal and two, two assists and did really well. And he kept me on, on the on the team after that. And, of course, the rest of the But I, I lost a, about, about um, a third of that season um, because because I didn't begin the season with them, but played for two years under, under Jacques Demers. And, again, Sherry Basson and Jacques Demers were just major influences on, on my development.
0: Yeah, two great mentors and allies uh, for for a young black person, and and we should, probably should situate this time. If you could tell us that the years when you were playing junior B and and you went on to play with Pickering, what what years were those? Yeah, so
1: I, so I went to college. I played played college seventy five through seventy nine. So I would have been playing for for Pickering in, in nineteen seventy four, the year before in. in so again, just just to elaborate,
0: you know the GTA in these areas, which people thought were somewhat diverse back then, diverse with ethnicities for people of color, were very far and few between uh, to find someone. Never mind on an ice service like you mentioned.
1: Yeah, exactly. I, the, the, the interesting thing with my development is I, I never stumbled across, other than my brother, of course. I never stumbled across another black hockey player until I went to the Kingston Canadians camp, which was actually after that year I played my first year with Sherrick. I got drafted to the OHL Kingston Canadians. Um, I wanted to play June Ray, but my father, who lived in the States at the time, uh, wouldn't let me. But so kind of surreptitiously, I went to the Kingston camp. And I was, I can't remember, but the 10th draft choice for the Canadians. And the number one draft choice that year was Tony McKegney. And so uh, we, we went there and uh, I did really well, well, well made the team, but my father wouldn't let me sign with the Canadians.
0: Yeah. I heard there was a funny story with you and um, yeah. uh, Tony in terms of people thinking you were Tony, is that correct?
1: Yeah, I, I put this in my book because Tony loves to tell the story where apparently Tony was a, a day late coming to camp. As, mm-hmm. as he tells the story, he, he comes to the camp, and the camp was all up in the lines because he says this guy was was skating around the ice and he couldn't really skate and so forth. And they thought he was me. So he kind of laughs. But then I say, and I have I said, okay, that's funny, Tony, but I have the stats from that camp and you and I had the same amount, same, exact same points. And so if I couldn't skate, then I must have been skating the same as you. If If I can shift back to this whole mentorship idea and then,
0: some of the experiences around that time you may have dealt with racism. I did read, I thought I read about Sherry Bass and kind of being in your corner. Is that correct? In terms of some
1: instances that may not have been so great. Oh, so much so, so much so. And this is is philosophically how I think racism should be dealt with. So to set the scene, Dean, I was this really shy kid. Now when I played hockey, of course, I, I was aggressive and, um, became a solid hockey player, but up yeah, I was this real quiet, shy kid. Um, and I just didn't like attention drawn my way. And so we're playing for the Pickering Panthers and we go to Belleville and there's a game with playoff implications. The stadium is just packed the way it always was. And we were the arch rivals and um, racism just rained down from the rafters the way it happened back back in the back in the day. And so at, at a certain point, Coach Bassin kind of, you know, folds his arms and wouldn't put the team on the ice. The referees come over to the bench and he, he goes, I want that character thrown out of this rink because of the abuse he, he was raining down on me. And the referees were saying, Coach, you know, if you don't put your team on the ice, then you're going to have to forfeit this game. Coach Bassin just said, we are not playing another second until this guy is, is thrown out of the game. And so... If you look over at me, Dean, and again, this kind of represents my life and career, I was just so embarrassed. And I gas I'm staring down at my state license because the whole rink, the whole focus of the whole rink is on me. I, I just want to be a part of the team and play the game that I love. But because I show up in this black skin, the whole you know, effort is, 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 is drawn my way. So, so eventually the person was was thrown out of the rink and they resumed the game. It's such a wonderful story because I feel that that's the way racism should be held. For example, when I see racism happen in the NHL, it happens almost every year and so on and so forth. Um, I just think that it shouldn't be the person of color dealing with the confrontation. I think it should be the teammates and the coaches and everybody else Um that should be rallying to the defense of the black person. And then that that never happens. But as I put in the book, I think racism should be a we problem, not a me problem, meaning everybody else should get involved. Sometimes I hear the voices of, of, of some of the players and say, Well, what can we do? My simple answer is, do you know, act out, support the person. you know, stop the game, do whatever it takes, support the person, don't leave the person to handle with the racism by themselves. Yeah, and that, that was that's a great example of how he had that uh,
0: fortitude, you know, to to stand up and say, like, we're 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 not playing until this gets uh, addressed.
1: Yeah, I think I think that's a, that's the solution, and and uh, and again, you asked me in the beginning, at the outset, what was the reason for writing the book? That was one of them was was to speak out on what I felt were solutions uh, to the problem. I I don't think diversity training and the things that they're doing are are the things to do or or, or helping. I think that it's got to be Collective effort, when something happens, everybody has to take action.
0: Yeah, he knew and other people knew back then right from wrong. And, and why should you be the brunt of all this nonsense that's happening in the in the arena? So that's a, that's a great story. Um, so then jumping ahead now to college hockey, what was it like being a college hockey player? And uh, again, you come across some future um, well-known names as uh, Neil Smith, I think you played with
1: at uh, Western Michigan. So maybe you could just elaborate on that. College was, was, was interesting from the standpoint that there was a no fighting rule. And it, it, it's always struck me as kind of comical because some people say, well, how could we stop fighting in hockey? Well, the answer is you can And the reason why they can stop it in college is because there's less games. There's, there's you know, multi-game suspension. And it builds off that. And so if if you if you um fight you you lose a good portion of, of your of your season. And so for the four years I was in, in college, although I still faced racism, you know, verbally type of a thing, um, there there were there's no fighting. And so it, it was kind of a hiatus from that. And it, it's it's interesting because I often wonder if if the Lack of fighting um, hurt me over time because that's, that's four years of fighting development type of thing. Like I, I said, um, but obviously, if you're going through the junior A right uh, right uh, route, you're you're fighting almost every every game. But I, I love the college experience. It was different. The thing I like about it most most Dean is that um, almost every game was played like a game seven in college. Just that atmosphere. You know, there's, there's, there's less games than, than, than Junior A. And so every time you show up, the rink would be packed. You know, the, 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 the students would be you know, making a ruckus type of a thing. And it just had a great atmosphere. So it was great preparation from that standpoint, because obviously when you play pro, you're playing in front of a large audience as well.
0: Well, it's a difficult transition for you, again, culturally, because here you are the, you know, Canadian kid, and all of a sudden you're playing hockey in the U.S., border state relatively, but can you shed some light on that for us?
1: It's such a great question because, um, when I, when I was in Toronto example, we lived in Ajax. I I bet you, I didn't know three black people I had one friend and I, he hated hockey, but I migrated to him because he, he was Black and, and we kind of hung out together type of a thing. And so um, back in the day, John and I weren't used to being around Blacks. And so the conundrum was, we arrive on the scene in Kalamazoo, Michigan. Um, hockey is what it is, but you go into that um, cafeteria, into the university Catholic cafeteria, and back in those days, Sex segregation. So the Blacks sat with the Blacks. The Whites sat with the Whites. Well, who did John and I sat with? We sat with the hockey players. That was our fraternity. But it was just so odd. As a matter of fact, and I put this in my book, um, I experienced some death threats that that first year. because And and we couldn't identify if if the caller was Black or, or White. But somebody didn't like the idea that I was... You know, dining with with the white white type of thing. They had discussions with the coach and whatnot, and we had some 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 police um, following following the issue. But it was it was it was so strange. But on the positive side, it was good for me and John because we we got around people of our own race, and it was it was it was, it was fun. It was, it was it was cool. I remember there was a couple of, of black um uh, track athletes that were right across the. The hall from us, and, and for example, they played Earth, Wind, and Fire, and, and and some 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 black music, and we were like, "Wow, what is that?" that sounds that sounds great. So it was positive. It was positive, and negative, but it was really a big cultural shift for both of us because we just, we weren't used to being around people of color. Hmm.
0: Did you have many Canadians on the team? I know um, back in the seventies and eighties, it was really more common for the to be Canadian. Players, more Canadians were probably playing than Americans in a lot of places. So, was that the makeup of your team? It was the
1: makeup of your team, and that added to the conundrum because because uh, hockey players just hang out with hockey players, and so they didn't see any, anything wrong. But the but the white Americans, and the black Americans, thought that this was just crazy type of thing, and, and didn't know didn't know how to deal with this. So we dealt with it a little over time, but the first few months it was it was pretty intense.
0: And then the rest of the league, in terms of what. You faced. I know. Again, there's no fighting, um, and there could have been many Canadians on scholarship for other teams. But can you talk about that experience in terms of the, the competition, how you might be treated?
1: Yeah, um, there there was a lot of verbal stuff. Um, although I would say less than uh, in juniors, because a lot of the verbal stuff in juniors is used is intimidation to try to go you into a fight. Because I, I had to come to peace with that, even in juniors, because. You know, hockey is a team sport, and it's such a difficult thing. But hockey is a team sport. Somebody deals with you as an individual by calling you a racial slur. Um, should you react individually to that, or should you, you know, respect the fact that you're, you're you're a teammate? And so, over time, I had to learn that the way to deal with with racism in hockey is is to put you know. Points on the board, type of things to score goals, as as opposed to fight. But there, there were there, were, there was um, several incidents of, of verbal slurs um, on the ice. There was a lot of ver- you know verbal stuff from the stands, always from the stands, because you're in the United States and there's this black hockey player out there. There's there's always a negative reaction. I, I had reactions from coaches, coaches as well. Um, but it but it just wasn't the fighting that that was um, so inherent in the Junior ranks in Tampa.
0: And I know what you mean. Um, All of a sudden, you take a number of penalties, and all of a sudden, your team is penalized, and your teammates are looking at you like it's a tough position to be in—to stay disciplined and not put your team at disadvantage. But but meanwhile, people are saying things to you that they shouldn't be saying. Yeah, it's
1: interesting. It's an interesting point because when when I wrote my book, I did some research on other players, and almost every player that I read about said the same thing. Said, you know what? I had to learn to play hockey and put points on the board and not deal with it individually because that, that's what they want. And of course, I, I was a goal scorer. And so if I'm goaded into a fight, that means that the other team wins because I can't score goals while while, while I'm in the penalty box. And that's what almost all my brothers said as, as they dealt with it when they when they came up in their careers. Yeah.
0: Um Maybe you can touch on the fact that Mike Morrison was a second black player in the NHL. And I understand, I I think he played against his brother, Larry. You might have played for Ohio State in the 70s as well.
1: Yeah, this is an interesting thing with me, uh, Dean, because I don't think that the world of hockey, hear me out here, I don't believe the world of hockey understands its history, its its black hockey history. Now, it's a difficult thing to say because I have great respect for Willie O'Ree. He's the first black hockey player, the first land on the moon. Dean, I, I can't fathom the amount of racism that he faced when he played in 1954. So due respects, and, and I, I don't want to say anything negative about him, but my point is this. It was 16 years after his, his first game before Mike Mike Morrison landed on the scene and Bill Riley came after that, then McKagan, and then me. And so when we came up, there was no internet, you know, there's no multimedia. So, so nobody had heard of Willie Ruley. When, when I first started, until maybe 10, 12, I had never heard of the man type of thing. So my point is this, with, with hockey history, you almost have to separate it by saying Willie Reed was the first, and he was. But Mike Marson was a trailblazer. Think, think of the word trailblazer. What does that mean? It means that you're, you're going through a thick, dense forest and, and you, know, you have a machete and you're clearing a path for the people behind you. Well, when we rode on, on the scenes in 75, there wasn't a clear path. Nobody nobody blazed that trail. So again, I can't say it enough that Willie really, Reed really is fantastic. He's the man. He deserves all the accolades that... He's been given. But I think history has to better understand the impact and import of Mike Marson because he was a trailblazer for hockey. And, and of course, when, when he played for the Capitals, Bill, Bill Riley played that that's the very same year, then McKegney and I came. and So he also opened the door for other Blacks. Um, and so you have to separate history in two for, for hockey. And nobody understands that. I've said it a lot, but nobody understands that.
0: Yeah, and you know, and I would, I would even build upon further. You know, one of the reasons that um, I think it's so neat talking to all the players is every single player who stepped on the ice in the NHL from Willie O'Ree
1: has made history. It's been cumulative history, even today. All these players are very humble. Mike Marson isn't going to say what I just said. You know, those words are not going to come in Mike Marson's mouth because he's a very humble man. But the simple point is that his importance. Was so critical to hockey. I just think that the annals of history have to heighten his his, his, his importance.
0: We all relate to different people. Um, it's it's obviously that great to have role models um, for, for black people, and just the the extension of all these stories and coming from different places. Like Mike Marsa as well was a high draft pick in junior hockey at the time too, even before the NHL. And I believe what you're saying about the whole pieces that the the media. Was not what it was today with everything that we that we have, but um, a lot of a lot of things went uh, went overlooked. Let me shift over now. Then um, talking about your journey to the uh, to the NHL and what led to that falling college hockey. The college hockey
1: thing was my father, <laughs> in one word, because John and I wanted to play major junior a like every other Canadian kid. When I, when I was in lived in Montreal. Again, I played for uh, the Shadigay Wings Junior B team, and I was invited to the Montreal Blue Blanc Rouge uh, camp. And went there, performed very well, but my father yanked me out of camp because he didn't want me to play major junior A. Same thing repeated in in, uh, Ontario where we go to Ajax, live in Ajax, Ontario, play for the Pickering Panthers, get drafted by the Kingston Canadians, go to camp, do really well. I think I was fourth in scoring in in, in camp that year, McKagney and I, Retired for third, I guess it was. My father Yanks me out of that camp. And so um I played another year for junior B under Sherry Bassum. And then as you would expect, I had you know 15 plus uh, scholarship offers. And it's kind of a funny story because I I was gonna go to either St. Lawrence. I like St. Lawrence because it's close. I was this homebody kid. I didn't want to go too far, and it's a quiet little town, which I really liked. So I headed down to St. Lawrence in Michigan. My brother initially had gone to Michigan, uh, but he was on the practice team. He didn't, he didn't make the full varsity team. And so again, that luck or fate happens. Um, Michigan's uh, scrimmages, Western Michigan. My brother plays in the game, does really well. Somehow, John talks to the coach, um, Bill Neal, after the game or sometime after the game. And the coach of Western says, John, if you're not happy at Michigan, Come to Kalamazoo, Michigan, and play for us uh, at Western Michigan. So that's what happened to to him. At the same time, I'm being recruited by all all these other teams, and so, um, of course, Western recruited me as well. But I was going to go to St. Lawrence or or Michigan. Call Bill Neal at Western Michigan University to tell him I was not going to Western. I was going to go some other place. And you know, again, I'm on the phone, and I think. I want to be with my brother. And so rather than saying, say, Coach Neil, I'm not going to Western, I was gonna say, Coach Neil, I'm going to Western. And the rest is history. I spent four years in Kalamazoo, Michigan playing for the Western Michigan Uni- University Broncos.
0: If you're enjoying Recognize and thinking about starting your own hockey card collection, I'd suggest you start with eBay eBay is all about connecting communities and fueling passions. Because of its thriving card collector community, I was able to make my dream come true by collecting the rookie cards of the NHL's black and biracial players. Start your own collection at ebay.ca slash hockey cards. So how do you transition and get the opportunity after playing college hockey to get to play with the Quebec Nordiques?
1: So I, I, was, I was followed. I did really well. you know. I, I left as Western as the all-time leading scorer, fulfilled all my objectives. And we played in some big tournaments and whatnot. And, and so I got some NHL uh, looks. I, I was not drafted. And so when I graduated or when, when school was over, John actually sent letters. John being my, my big brother, um, who was my de facto first agent, he sent out letters to every general manager in the NHL and the WHA, and we, we had we had a few that showed interest. Interesting enough, um, the, the one that was most interested was, was John Ferguson. He, he had followed me that year um, and liked like like my game, and so he he wanted me to come into uh, Winnipeg uh, of the WHA. I actually, went there for a brief period of time while I was still at Western. Did really well. So the plan was to come back. And uh, play for um, Ferguson in Winnipeg that that next year, but then again, they the WHA merged with the NHL during that summer, and so that was off. Uh, but I was a free agent. picked up picked up an agent, Art Kaminsky, who was one of the biggest agents at the of, of the time. Art kind of peddled me around the league, and we had we had four different offers. And uh, long story short, I ended up going to Quebec mainly because. One, we thought I, I, I had the best opportunity at making the roster. And two, because Jacques Demers, my former junior B coach, was, was now the coach of the Quebec Nordiques. Yeah, really, everything comes back full circle.
0: You played in NHL for a few seasons. Can you tell us what may have helped or hindered your arrival or departure on the NHL scene?
1: I always got to be careful when I talk about this because people say, uh, oh, Bernie's just, you know, crying in this stupid, stupid type of thing. Um, but using like one example where I go into training camp my second year after after lights out in in the American League the year before. I uh, first they sent me to Cincinnati, which was in the old Central League. I was leading the Central League in scoring. So then they essentially said, Bernie, if you can score in the American League the way you're scoring in, in the Central League, then we'll bring you up. I go to the American League and I do better, um, I phenomenal numbers. Although I only played half a year there, I and mean, if you take my numbers, look at my numbers, and you project them to a full year, I would have would have been you know one of the top five players in the league and one of I think I think second in goals. And so I had a phenomenal breakout year, and they did tell me at the at the end of that year that Bernie, you're on the team like like just phenomenal first year pro. So one of the reasons. Was just bad luck. And so that summer, I'm preparing for my first full year in the NHL. John is now working for City TV in Toronto as a broadcaster. We're living together in Toronto. He calls me for <laughs> work because it's burning. Uh, you got to sit down. I got bad news for him. I'm thinking, did somebody die, type of thing? And the news that he had was that the Quebec Nordiques smuggled the Stastny brothers out of Czechoslovakia. You know after the world games and, and so i i just dropped two you know points in the, in the depth chart because they're bringing these two world class players and so i go into camp um lead the camp in goals and you know i press on my face and and just, just a phenomenal job everybody thinks i made the team and they sent me to the minors at, at at that at that point and then again as luck would have it um they sent me to the minors the team, they don't have an AHL team that year, so they put me on loan to Halifax. And Halifax has Gikarbo, Danny Dow, Craig Laughlin. They're just loaded, and of course, they're not going to develop the, the Nordics players. And there's three of us that went there, so I go my second. I go 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 to Halifax. I sit on the bench. So what happens? My numbers decline, of course, but it wasn't because of performance; it was because I'm sitting on the Montreal Canadiens farm team bench type of thing. So. To answer your question, you know, typical life. There was some bad luck and bad timing type, of, type, of, type of thing. There, there's there some situations where I felt I wasn't treated properly, but it, it, it was just, it was just, kind of, just kind of life. And most importantly, the third year, they now have a farm team in Fredericton, and Jacques Demers he reemerges in the story. He wants me to be the captain of Fredericton and score 50 goals in Fredericton. He says, Bernie, you know, you and I will go back to the NHL together. And I was just so distraught at the time. I felt beat up. I thought, and and I, I'm, I dealing with a lot of racism off the ice um, at that time. I just felt my heart was in it. I thought, you know, I proved I was an NHL NHLer. When I was in there, I did really well. And again, you don't have to listen to me. I, I put in the book. I put press clippings of people saying that this this guy did really well in the NHL. And so I thought, you know what? I've got a I got a college edu- education. This is not for me. And I left the game at that time and I never looked back.
0: And, and just uh, following up on what you said about Quebec, there probably was a coaching change may have had an impact as well too, because Jacques, I think you mentioned Jacques was coaching Quebec and then he wasn't. Yeah. And,
1: and Michel Bergeron goes in there. And, and again, Bergeron was a product of the you know, Quebec major type of thing. And you know, he, I don't think he ever saw me as a qualified hockey player. He just sees his blackout there. Like what, what is this type of thing? And so they, they gave me one real shot. Um, they got on, came out of the gates really poorly, and the, the press really built it up big. They actually called it the Bernie Sanders controversy because they because they, they they cut me from the team. And so they brought me in, and uh, there's there's just all this pressure. Not, not not like wow, like they they wanted this this person to come in and turn turn around the team. I came and I did well, but I did some some typical you know rookie mistakes type of thing. Took took a few bad penalties. And they set me down and, and just never returned. And so it just was, wasn't, wasn't meant to be. But I basically said, okay, I've got a college education. So I went into a different profession.
0: Yeah. And I I
1: also want to pick up that point you
0: mentioned about the stats. And how how difficult is that? Because you were, you were there as a scorer. Like today we would say, I guess, top six forward type thing. And when other players come in, then you don't have that role. You weren't really an enforcer. So, you know, what? What, what's left, it's, uh, it impacts you. Um, I, I often wonder, too, there didn't seem to be a lot of trading for a player like you back then, too. You, you would think that another team or Quebec would say, here's a scoring forward. Why not find a spot and get something back?
1: That's an, it's a really interesting point, Dean, because what happened is, is um, after that happened to me, um, so I'm going into my third year. So I go back to Art commencing my, my agent. I says, Art, get me out of Quebec. Now I, I I tore up the American Hockey League. Now, what more do you want me to do? I did well in the NHL. They, they won't elevate me. Get me out of there because I'm on a three-year contract. I don't want to be you know a minor league lifer. And so get me out of there. And so that entire summer, uh, Art uh, worked to get me out of, out of Quebec City. And I, I have verified that he had these offers for me. And the Nordics wouldn't trade me. And so um, at the end of the summer, we have a conference call and he says, Bernie, what can I tell you? They they refuse to trade you. So that must mean you have a future with them. So just go in and have a good camp. And you know the rest will set up. So I went in, went in camp and had a decent camp. And they, they sent me back to Fredericton and wanted me to be the captain of the Fredericton Express. And I just said, No, I'm just not doing this. I'm just not doing this. And and who knows again. I put it all on me because if I hadn't gone into Fredericton, Jacques was a coach, I I, I would have been on the first line, power play. I I probably would have had 60 goals that year. And if somebody gets injured, they bring me up. I do well. I play 10 years in the league. So the the key point for me is that I am not crying in in, in my soup here. I was the one that said, enough is enough. I'm leaving type of thing. And again, I've I've never looked back. I've had a great life to you're just balancing
0: the probabilities at, at that time, right? For yeah, sure.
1: Exactly. Yeah,
0: exactly. Um, you did, one of your stints uh, playing was with the Syracuse Firebirds. I remember you um, sharing uh, the story about uh, a bit of a fan club. So I just wanted to to touch on that because there's a really neat story about the impact that you had as a racialized person on on those people that were your fans. I, I think. Yeah,
1: I, 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 I love that you raise this because. Um, I don't want to just, you don't want to just talk with the negativity because on the negative side, I, I can never understand. Like, like I can understand the visual anomaly. Okay. So you're in the stands, you're looking down on the ice, everybody's white. And all of a sudden there's this black person. I had to sit out. And so, um, I understood the visual anomaly and the fact that all eyes were riveted on me. The thing I never understood, Dean, was why that had to equal hatred. It was just because I was different, why did you have to, you know, name call and all this racism and so so forth? That that's the thing that that just 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 confused me. But going back to your question, the flip side is just a wonderful thing. Almost every town I played in, I became the fan favorite. Western Michigan University for four years. I was a captain and fan favorite. Every time I touched the puck, the fans would get up on their feet and standing ovations every time I, I did something good. Um, the Syracuse example: I go into Syracuse, and of course I'm I, I'm setting the AHL on fire. But the the um, Syracuse University Law Society forms this Bernie Saunders fan club where you know there will be 40, 50 guys up in this one section with a banner and so on and so forth. And the same thing, everything. Every time I, I I touched the puck type of thing, um, they would jump to their feet. Now, I like to say that I had this dynamic style, which which was which was um favorable. I was one of these Charlie Hustle guys where I, I never let up not not, not on a play as a goal scorer and a black on top of that. And so I, I think I was um you know, a good person to watch. But the point is is that there's good bad to every story and that's the that's that's the positive side of it every place i went went there i turned into the the local town a town favorite
0: that's a great story to share can you talk about some of the favorite cities you played in in the short time that you played does anything stand out to you
1: well the thing that probably stands out the most that any player would talk about is your first game and my first game dean was in the old chicago stadium so it's just an amazing thing. So you get the call. Um, I remember when I got the call, I got called in the in the coach's office, or actually the general manager's office of Syracuse, drawing Rupp. And he basically says, Bernie, you, know, you got the call. And that feeling is just, you know, you want to cry, but you're a man, so you don't want to cry in front of the general manager. I left his office. The first person I called was my brother. And there had to be... 60 seconds of silence where I'm crying on my end of the line and he's crying on the end of his line because it, it felt like we were both going to the show. And so I, you know, I go into Chicago, I, I got called up for, for their their, uh, their western swing and met them in Chicago. And it, it, it's an old rink, huge, 20,000 seat arena. And the restroom is downstairs, you know, low ice level behind the, the Blackhawk net. And to get to ice surface, you have to walk up these steep stairs, these wooden stairs are really steep at the ice level. So I go in there, everybody says, you know, welcome, for bring your type of thing, put on the nerdy ner- ner- journey. Dean, you walk up those stairs. I in my, in my book, I call it Stairway to Heaven because you walk up the stairs and then you walk into this room, all these ruby red seats, as big as room you ever want to see, just all these people whatnot, the bright lights, Tony Esposito, the Chicago's um, Blackhawks goalie, right there that you watched on TV all your life, just an amazing, amazing feeling that I, I just felt. Um, you know, just in awe. But the interesting was, like I said at the outset, I believe I was supposed to be there. You know, I wasn't intimidated. I played a really good game. I felt that it was where I was supposed to be. But just that that mood, which is just, just amazing, it's something I will never ever forget. And, and do you still have a Quebec a Nordiques jersey? I don't. Uh, back back in the day, um, they were they were really stingy with the jerseys. I know now they wear three jerseys a game type of thing. Back in the day, I never got my hands on one. They they just wouldn't let you back in those days. But 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 the interesting thing about my jersey that that I'm really proud of, uh, going back to this discussion on the history history of hockey, is that my first year I wore number 25, which was the issue for you know the the players come up from the minors. The second year. I wore twenty-two, and twenty-two was Willie O'Ree's or number, and so that just was left a special thing, thing in, in my heart. Feeling that, you know, I made it the I, I It wasn't intentional. Again, it was just the the, the roaming number that was available, but but I, I knew it was his, his number at that point, and just felt something to be wearing the same number as Willie O'Ree. Or
0: so I'll let you now talk about um, how you transitioned into a
1: career after hockey. Yeah, I'm really proud of myself, Dean, because I. I call it packing a parachute because every fiber of my body felt that I would play 15 years in the NHL. There's no question in my mind. But when I got to Western Western Michigan University, I'm the type of person that thought, well, well, you're here. You know, I'm at university now. I, I, may, as, I may as well I'll take advantage of it. And so a lot of the players, unfortunately, a lot of players flunked out. And a lot of other players just took um, courses just to, just to stay eligible. I felt, no, I'm here. Um, let me plot something that can pay dividends down the road. And so I I um, took a major, took on a major in marketing, business administration with an emphasis on marketing. And grew uh, to actually like it. And the other interesting thing, which is a great lesson for the kids is that, again, I said earlier, I didn't do well in high school. But what I later understood, it's pretty obvious, but what I, what, what I later understood was, Dean, the, the reason why I wasn't doing well in school was because I was out playing sports all the time. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't have my nose in the book, and you know, I I'd do the minimal for homework type of thing and go and, and shoot pucks type of thing. So when I, when I got to university, I really applied myself. And it's kind of a funny story because at the, at the end of my first semester, the coach comes up to me and says, Bernie, congratulations. You made the Dean's List. I thought, is that a hockey award? I I didn't even know what that was, the the Dean's List type type of thing. And so over time, I I, um, grew to enjoy education. And so I'm a hard worker. And so I I learned to put as much effort into my education and into my books as I did into hockey. And again, as the story kind of flows, when I hit that crossroads with hockey where Do I play that third year in Fredericton or do I do something else? I said, I thought, you know what, I'm educated and I don't like this. I'm not having fun. The game is kind of rejecting me. I have an alternative, and I I, I took the right hand turn and got into business. And again, I've had a great life and I've never looked back.
0: Do you keep in touch with any of the teammates from uh, any of the prior hockey experiences? You know, the
1: the one I do the most, his name is Gary Murphy. Um, And again, he's he's, uh, one of the heroes of my book uh, because when I got cut from those teams in junior, uh, I befriended him. And uh, he learned just through discussions, because he didn't know, but through discussions, that I I was a hockey player. And he happened to be the star captain of the Perking Panthers. And so when he had those suspensions, uh, he went to Sherry Bass and says, Hey, uh, we got to call some pillars up. I got this guy that played juniors last year. Won't, won't we bring him in? And so Sherry kind of brought me in sight unseen because because of Gary. And after that, we became lifetime friends and uh, just love the guy type of thing. And he's one of those quality people that you just want to hang on to for, for the
0: rest of your life. So yeah, again, another uh, influential ally. So um, I'll shift back to something you've touched on before. Maybe you could elaborate further. Um, what do you think needs to happen for more racial minorities and underrepresented groups? to either play hockey or make it to
1: the NHL? Dean, I, I have somewhat of a controversial answer for you on this one because I, I, I put it into two different groupings. And, and you can appreciate this, I, I know. So if, if you're like Dean Barnes or Bernie Saunders and you grew up with a love of the game, um, maybe you're in Canada, maybe it's one of these neighboring um, you know, places like Minnesota whatever, but if you come up with the game and an understanding of the game and whatnot and love for the game, then um, you go for it type of thing and, and do all the things that we talked about in this interview, you know, hard work, you'll get good coaching, dedicate yourself, um, take responsibility, work hard on the ice, on ice, off the ice. But here's the thing. Hockey is what I call, Dean, a conformist game. You watch a game of hockey. I don't watch a lot of hockey, but Dean, you watch a game of hockey, and all of the goal celebrations are the same. You know, they they score, they raise their stick, they do their flyby, they touch and stuff, and so on and so forth. Um, all their interviews are the same. They almost dress the same. So it's a conformist league, and if you love the game and you want to play under those confines. Then it's a fantastic game. It's it's. I think it's the best game on the planet Earth. Okay. But you hear a butt coming, and here's my butt, because the league administrators say hockey is for everyone. Dean, it's not. So when I say conformist, it's the, one of the opposites of the conformity is diversity. So if you are a black man from you know, I'm in South Carolina or whatever. Um, But if you have the characteristics or tropes of a black man and you want to go out there and play hockey and celebrate, for example, like they do in basketball or football, Football football's an emphasis for celebrations and whatnot, Um, or show or or call attention yourself or or, or whatever, Um, I call it kind of the P.K. Subban example, example, where the system will absolutely reject you it will reject you. And so um, I was. I kind of learned to leave any tropes of a black man in the car because you don't want to bring that in, in, into the right type of thing. And, and here's where I think hockey really misses it, misses it, is that because of this system, there's so many potential great athletes that just would not play this game. Now, it's a great game. And again, if, if you like the product the way it is, then then that's fine. But if you want to be for everybody, then you have to be accepting of diversity. And a black man doesn't act like a white man, doesn't act like another type of thing. And so you have to be more accepting. And so I think it's a great place if you go into it conforming the way you have to. But if you go in like P.K. Subban with guns a-blazing, the system is just going to reject you.
0: Well, it's interesting because even your passive approach when you gave examples of Syracuse and the uh, law society, like diversity, whoever you are, diversity is interesting. It's creative. It's, it's not everything, everyone being the same. And and I thought about that when you gave that example about what impact you had, you know, I know that was just one example, but I guess other sports have adapted over time with the personalities who have come in, whether it be, you know, when Tiger Woods came in in golf and, you talk about Larry, Larry Bird, and Magic Johnson at the time when they came in. Just anything that is unique and different, and uh, you know, look, look at the NFL right now today with the evolution of uh, more black quarterbacks and the way the game's played. It's that's that's innovation to me. So it sounds to me like some of the innovation
1: hockey's fallen fallen behind on. I, I think they miss out on it. Like, like think think about if LeBron James ever played hockey. I mean, he would have been the best power forward in the history game. He would have propelled it forward. And then the irony about it, what you just said, it, dean. But the irony about this is, is that the tide rises for everybody. Meaning, when when Tiger Woods hit the golf scene, everybody got everybody got paid more, and it just, it just brought so much more into the, in, into the game of golf. There was a time and you can remember this. There was a time not so long ago, dean. When hockey and basketball were kind of on par, you know, kind of on par type type of thing, but basketball, ironically, predominantly black man's game, has just rocketed in front of hockey, and hockey kind of kind of stagnates. And like I said, if you're in Winnipeg or you know, a Canadian city, hockey is a huge thing, and you love the product. Gee, I live in South Carolina. Nobody even knows what hockey is, and, and a lot of, even in, even in a lot of hockey towns where they have NHL cities, um, they've developed hockey followings, which is a good thing. But most people in town don't, don't even go past the ring, the rank type type of a thing. So I just think hockey leaves so much on the table um, because of this. And and like, like I said, it, it it it's just so sad. And interesting enough is that. I think one of the reasons why I had that farm team in Syracuse and and every place I went is I had kind of a swagger to my game. I I, I had some flashy goals and, and stuff that would get people on their feet, type of thing. And I think that that type of athleticism is needed in hockey. But but again, it's it's such a conformist thing or, 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 or sport that it's going to take a while. And interesting enough too, because I, I got to say this is that I think the keys to the castle, it isn't really with the front office who have all these slogans, hockey's for everyone type of thing. Team, it's the players, right? It wasn't the front office that tamped down PK Sudan. It was the players who did it. They said, no, you can't act like that here. you got to act this way. And, and after a while, you, you watch that guy play, he didn't know what to do. He, he, play, he was a me- mediocre player because he didn't know what to do type of thing. He's got this, this this personality and you know all this energy inside, and they're saying no, PK Subban, you you can't do this, you can't do that type type of thing. So I, I think the solutions for hockey um, lie with the players more so than the administrators. I'm going to ask you, sir, so what
0: what legacy would you like to sort of leave for the next generation in terms of um,
1: reflecting upon your career and what you would want them to know. I think I think the most important thing for me is that. Hockey is no different than any any other endeavor. Um, I I was a person that was just dedicated to my sport, and that I, I would have done the same thing if it was playing guitar or, or, or something else. And so, again, I, I had this this one this goal in mind, and for me, um, it was more than a goal. It was it was, it was almost like a plan. It wasn't you no know, if I play in the hockey, if I play in the NHL. It was when I play in the NHL, and so for. A young person, um, I'd say, if, if it's hockey or whatever it is, um, just 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 put in the work. Get the information, of course, um, that that you need to improve yourself and get the coaching, and whatnot. But just put in the work, day and night. Dedicate yourself. Get the information. There's so many things that you can do um, in, in today's world to get information, and then just apply it and just just to be dogged, have dogged determination to go for it. Because for me, Dean. Probably the happy ending to the story is, is that, again, I have no regrets. I, I did all this stuff that I'm saying. I made it to the NHL. Things happened. It was like, okay. But when I retooled and went into business, I just did the same thing. I just outworked my competition, did all the things, all the lessons from hockey. I applied to business and repeated the same thing, and I was ultra successful in business. So it's been a great life, and like I said, that's – the way I see life is just put in the work, work out work your competition, and things will fall in line.
0: Yeah, that that's wonderful advice and the parallels, the parallels of the education you got in hockey and carry that through in life. So yeah. So I really appreciate you uh spending time with us here, uh Bernie, and wish you well and hope you stay in touch. Uh we're looking forward to hearing about uh, from other stories. Um, As you said, I think there's lots of players who have made uh, significant contributions, have added to the diversity of the game, and hopefully we're leaning towards a a path with uh, people understanding more of the history that uh, we can
1: hope that there's more inclusion in the future. Dean, thanks so much for having me, and good luck with with the podcast. We're proud to be working with Hockey
0: Equality. Hockey Equality is on a mission to create diversity at all levels of the game of hockey by lowering financial barriers for BIPOC female and other equity deserving youth hockey players. If you've been moved by the stories shared on this podcast and want to help make hockey accessible to all, check out HockeyEquality.org. If you've enjoyed this podcast and would like to share this story with your kids, then check out My Hockey Hero. It's shorter and suitable for the whole family you can click the link in the show notes or find it wherever you get your podcasts.
1: This has been a Podstarter production. Production.